as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, if you would follow along with me as I read. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to the, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, the things in heaven and the things on earth. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you're with us this morning as we go over this text, as we look at this idea of redemption and and what that means, Lord, and, and just look at the grace that you have poured out on us, Lord, those that are saved, those that have their faith in you, Lord, how much we have been saved from, Lord. God, I pray that we are encouraged this morning as we continue to look at the blessings you have poured out on us, Lord. I pray that 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 encouragement encourages us, Lord, to bless others and to love others as we overflow, Lord, with blessings from you, God. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. We've almost been a month now in this amazing doxology by Paul. One sentence, just amazing to me, in the Greek, I know in English it's not, but in the Greek it's one sentence, 202 words long, a massive sentence just praising God for his glory and his glorious grace. Verses 3 through 14 praises each member of the Trinity, as I've been saying for weeks now, for their different, different works within salvation, past, present, future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verses 4 through 6, eternity past, God the Father chose us, he predestined us, he planned out our salvation. Verses 7 through 12, in this present age, Jesus redeemed us, forgave us, and accomplished our salvation. In verses 13 through 14, the promised future of the Holy Spirit seals us to a guaranteed future inheritance. And each of these sections ends with this phrase, to, to the praise of his glory, which is the main point of this doxology. All the praise, all the glory goes to God for our salvation. In other words, we are blessed and rich, infinitely rich. I hope you guys are seeing this. And all the praise goes to God. It's like Paul starts praising God and he just can't stop with his pen. (laughs) Doesn't even take a breath, 202 words long, no period, no comma, nothing, just goes. And why is Paul doing this? Because he wants you to know how blessed you are so that... You will love. I believe this is the theme of Ephesians. I kind of just made this up from my studying of the book as a whole. The depth of God's grace lived out in love. Today we're going to start looking at verses 7 through 12, and I'm going to say start. We're going to be here for two Sundays. Uh, This present age, Jesus redeemed us. Look at verse 7. It just says, In him we have redemption. In him we have redemption. To do this, we really need to understand what the word redemption means because I believe there's a false misunderstanding in our culture today. When we say redemption in our culture, it's, it's usually because we are the victims and we're finding redemption somewhere. But that's not a biblical understanding of redemption. We really need to understand what redemption means biblically. So I'm going to go over three examples 
of redemption from biblical context. The first example is the Roman culture where Paul is writing. So it's, it's during the time Paul's writing. So when Paul uses the word redemption, what did his audience understand that word to mean? It's extremely important because Paul uses that. So we need to understand what this word redemption means in the culture he was writing to. And the word in Greek is latrumai. Latrumai. It's the Greek word. It's used in Ephesians 1, 7. Right? There's two different words for redemption, but latrumai is the one that's used in Ephesians 1, verse 7. It refers to, it refers to paying a ransom in order to release a person from bondage, especially slavery. Paying a ransom to release a person from bondage, especially slavery. In the Roman Empire, there were six million slaves. Six million slaves. Slavery was a major business, and redemption was a way of setting a slave free. One commentator said this, if a person wanted to be free, right, if a slave wanted to be free, a loved one or friend of that slave could buy that slave for himself then grant him freedom. That's the first example of, of redemption. That's what that word, that Greek word meant in that culture was to buy a slave to set him free. The second example is actually a biblical example. So if you would, turn with me to Leviticus 25, verse 47. Leviticus, it's in the front of your Bible. We don't spend a whole lot of time in Leviticus, but this is a biblical context of what the word redemption means. And to be honest, it's, it's very similar to the Roman understanding of redemption. Leviticus Chapter 25, verse 47, it's on the screen if you want to just look there. I should, is it? Yes. Verse 47, it says this, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother besides him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan. In other words, one man becomes wealthy, rich. Another man becomes poor, probably because of bad decisions or other reasons. That poor man sells himself to the rich man and becomes a slave. Look at verse 48. Then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Well, how can you be redeemed? In the same way in the Roman culture. Look at the second part of verse 48. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him. Or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. In other words, a brother, cousin, or uncle may pay the price of a, of a slave to, to buy him, to redeem him, to let him out of slavery. Look at verse 50. He shall calculate with the, his buyer. Now this is important. I want you to get, get this. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he was sold to him until the year of jubilee where slaves were set free and the the price um, of his cell shall shall vary with the number of years in other words you should see how much this the slave is worth and pay how much he's worth to the person that that um, has him the time he was with uh, his owner shall be rated as a time of a uh, higher worker if there are still many years left he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of his sell price. 
So how many years left to the year of Jubilee? He should pay that much proportionally to buy the slave. In other words, calculate the price, right? And the rich relative can pay the price, buy that person, and then set him free. Why don't you look at verse 53? Because I think this is important too, what God says about slavery. He says, He shall treat him as a, a worker hired year by year. In other words, God is commanding, you, you better treat him well. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight, and he is not redeemed by these means. In other words, he doesn't have a relative to pull him out of slavery. Then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. Why does God care so much about slaves? Right? He commands to treat them fairly, not ruthlessly. Right? And that they should be released so they're not slaves forever and their children get put in slavery. Well, look at verse 55. For it is to me the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord their God, your God. In other words, God is saying, I own Israel. They're my people. I brought out I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, they're my people. I own them. Which leads to the last example of redemption in Scripture, Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It'll be on the screen, too, if you want to just look up there. The first two examples of redemption, this word redemption, is a slave being bought by a rich relative to be set free. Paying the debt that that person owes a lot of time in Roman culture, the reason why you became a slave is because you got so indebted you couldn't pay the debt back. And therefore you went into slavery to pay that debt back. Look at what it says in Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. This, in other words, a small nation. It's this one family that moved to, to Egypt became this great nation in number. And Egypt was afraid of them. They were living within Egypt, but they were their own people, and there were so many of them. So this is what he does. Verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them and inflicted with them with heavy burdens. They enslaved them with heavy burdens. In other words, harsh slavery. I want you to think about that in the context of this idea of redemption. Israel was this poor nation. A nation without a land. They were just a couple families. They were so poor, in fact, that they had to sell themselves to Egypt just to survive. And God bought them out of slavery. With a mighty hand, ten plagues, he bought them out of slavery. Turn to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. We went over this passage a few weeks ago. It lines up pretty well with Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, actually. Listen to what it says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession 
out of all the peoples um, who are on the face of the planet, it was not because you were more in number than the other peoples. In fact, they were enslaved. They're this small country, a family that sold themselves into slavery because they didn't have a land or anything to provide for themselves. It was not because you were more in number than the other peoples that, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were a poor nation. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You are mine because I bought you. From the house of slavery, I redeemed you. Turn, if you want to, to Deuteronomy 9, verse 26, because it says something very similar. It should be on the screen, too. And I pray to the Lord, O Lord, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, God redeemed Israel from Egypt. He bought them out of slavery. So those are our three examples to help us understand the word redemption. And here's just a quick definition. I think biblically, redemption means someone wealthy buying a slave for the purpose of freeing him from slavery. Someone wealthy buying a slave with the purpose of freeing him from slavery. So let's look at our passage today now with that understanding. Turn with me back to Ephesians 1, verse 7. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. There's four observations I want to make in these two verses. The Redeemer, the redeemed, the price of redemption, and the results of redemption. The Redeemer, the redeemed, the price of redemption, and the result of redemption. So let's start with the Redeemer. Look at verse 7 again. In Him, in Him, we are redeemed because we are in Him. It's very important. In fact, all of our spiritual blessings come because we are in Him. Paul wants us to be extremely clear. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God, our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, we are blessed because we are in Christ. His blessing, which is every, every blessing, becomes our blessing because we are in him. We see this throughout Ephesians 1 and 2. Look at verse 4. Because Jesus is beloved before the foundations of the world, the Father has set his affections on us before the foundations of the world. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Look at verse 5. Because Christ is a son of God, we are sons and daughters of God. Because we are in him, God treats us as sons. Look at verse 11. Because Jesus has an inheritance as a son, we have an inheritance because we are in him. 
his inheritance becomes our inheritance. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because Jesus is beloved, we are beloved. Because we are in him. We need to grasp this. I hope you're encouraged this morning. Listen, if you're struggling in life, if there's something that's going on, you need to know how much God loves you. How blessed you are if you're a Christian this morning, if you put your faith in Christ, when God the Father looks down at you, you know what he sees? His son. Not because he lo- we look like his son at all, but because we are in him. Because his son has redeemed us. So Jesus is the redeemer. He's the rich relative that buys us out of slavery. I want to look now at the redeemed. Who are the redeemed? Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Well, who are the we? We've talked about this. What's the antecedent to we? Well, verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Again, we just means all Christians, right? And Paul includes himself. We are redeemed, the Christians. It's an important question we should ask. Redeemed from what? You might be thinking, I've never been a slave. Slavery has been abolished in America. Well, two weeks ago, I, I made a point of saying the Bible never says the word free will. It just doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. But the Bible is clear on three things. Man has a will, and he is free to follow his heart. In other words, we're not robots. Our choices are our choices coming from our heart. The second thing the Bible is very clear is that our choices matter. Every choice you make matters. Before and after salvation. And three, we will be 100% responsible for our choices. Why do I bring this up? Because I was very careful in what I said. I said man is free To follow his own heart. Here's the problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The Bible says before we were saved, our hearts were made of stone. Ezekiel 11, 19. I will remove the heart of stone the promise of the New Testament, what's going to happen. I'll, I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The Bible says clearly that our hearts were uncircumcised. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. Ephesians 2.1 says our hearts were spiritually dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Colossians 2.13 says the same thing. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, our hearts, before we were saved, before God brought life, were deceitful, desperately sick and wicked, made of stone, uncircumcised, completely spiritually dead. And because we had hearts of stone... This is so important. 
we were in bondage. We were in slavery. The Bible never says we have free will. But you know what it does say over and over again about the unsaved man? He is enslaved to sin. John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, uh, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, before we were saved, we were enslaved to sin. Romans seven fourteen, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh sold under sin. Romans six sixteen. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. Who gets the thanks? The great giver. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standards of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, our hearts have changed. Before we were saved, the Bible is clear, we were in bondage. We weren't free. We were slaves. Just like Israel and Egypt, poor and enslaved, And instead of being enslaved to the Egyptians, we were enslaved to sin. Therefore, we needed a redeemer. We needed someone rich who could buy us out of slavery and set us free. So that leads us to our third point, the price of redemption. And here's a truth that we need to understand. How much it costs to set us free directly correlates to how bad, evil, ugly, costly our sin was before we were saved. Let me just say that again. How, how much it costs to set us free directly correlates to how bad, evil, ugly, and costly our sin was before we were saved. Remember Leviticus, right? They had to calculate the price that would be paid to set the slave free. Well, look at Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood. You want to know how bad sin is? This is what kills me about churches and Christians that don't take sin seriously. You want to know how bad sin is? Look at the cross. It took the death of Jesus to set us free. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the the, uh, futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not by perishable things, silver and gold. In other words, God didn't ransom us. He didn't buy us out of slavery with silver and gold. Our debt was way more than that. Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ. How much do you think Jesus is worth? Infinite. 
We had an infinite price on our head. That's why hell's eternal, by the way. Sin is infinitely bad. Why? Because it's rebellion against an infinite God. I have a story that kind of illustrates this because I want us to grasp this. I was in Indonesia and we were driving around with an Indonesia man. He was driving a man that's never left the country but spoke English really well. And there was people on the side of the road just starting fires and just caught me off guard. Like, there's fires everywhere. And I asked, I'm like, what's going on? And they're burning their trash. That's what they do. And I said, man, you'd go to jail if you did that in California. And he was shocked. He looked at me like, why would anyone go to jail for setting fires? Well, you have to remember and picture this guy's never left Indonesia, and that is the greenest, wettest place I've ever been to in my life. I said to him, and you start a fire like that in California, that whole mountain right there would be on fire. And he was just shocked. He couldn't believe it. The severity of the punishment caught him off guard. It wasn't until I explained the seriousness of the act that it made sense to him. Fires in California are a big deal. Listen, the price that to set us free before salvation, to buy us out of slavery, was death. It was death. And God has made this very, very, very clear. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the, by the life. One commentator said this about this, this passage. The, the Old Testament was very clear to indicate that the shedding of blood was involved in sacrifice. Sacrificial animals were not to be killed by strangulation. In other words, you had to cut the throat and let the blood drain out. I mean, think of the cost... To bring Israel out of Egypt. The Passover lamb. You would slit the lamb's throat. Blood would go everywhere. Then you would paint the blood on the doorposts. I mean, how vivid imagery is that? Listen, Old Testament sacrifices were purposely bloody. To show the seriousness of sin. If you grew up in the Old Testament in Israel, you would have grown up seeing lamb after lamb after lamb slaughtered. Bloody mess. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why death? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death what we owed. Before salvation, we owed a debt. The price was death. And God was very upfront with this, was he not? What did he tell Adam and Eve? If you sin, you will die. That's the price of sin, right? Genesis 2, 16, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will shall surely die. 
The price of sin and rebellion is death. What happened? Adam and Eve ate, right? They saw that they were naked, ashamed, and guilty. And what did they do? They tried to cover their nakedness, shame, and guilt with fig leaves. Fig leaves will do it. We'll cover it all with fig leaves. We'll make some clothes. We'll be good. What did God do? Genesis 3.21. And the Lord made for Adam and his wives garments of skin and clothed them. God covered their nakedness, guilt, and shame. Think about this. By killing an animal, skinning it, and then using that skin to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. I mean, Adam and Eve has, have never seen death at this point. We're so immune to death. They've never seen death. And the first death they've seen is God slaughtering an animal, my guess a lamb, and skinning it in front of them and covering them saying, that's how bad your sin is. That's how serious sin is. It took death to cover your nakedness. It took death to redeem you from slavery. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Old Testament lambs that were slaughtered all pointed to Jesus on the cross. They all pointed to the cross where Jesus poured out his life for us. Romans 3.23 says this, For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for, by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, if you're not a Christian this morning, put your faith in Christ. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you owe. Eternal death in hell. And God is offering you grace this morning through faith. Trust in his Son. That's the Redeemer, the redeemed, the price of redemption. Now let's look at the results of redemption. And the results really are simple. Forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. One commentator said this, I just so simple. If redemption is the cause, then forgiveness is the effect. In other words, to redeem us, God had to forgive us. Look at Ephesians 1.7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. What's interesting, in the history of Israel, lambs were slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered and goats were slaughtered and slaughtered to show the price of atonement, to show how, how bad our sin is and what it would cost to get us out of debt to be forgiven, to atone for our sins, to redeem us. But there was another practice on the Day of Atonement. It's just interesting. One commentator said this, Israel's greatest holy day is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, 
the high priest selected two unblemished goats. One goat was killed, and his blood was sprinkled on the altar as a sacrifice. The high priest placed his hands on the head of the other goat, symbolizing the laying of the sins of the people on that animal. The goat was then taken out deep into the wilderness as far away as they could, never to find its way back. It symbolized that the sins of the people went with that goat, never to return to them again. So found in Leviticus 16. That symbol showed that the forgiveness of our sins is complete. God forgives our sins completely as Christians. Psalms 103.10 says, He did not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Right? Again, those that are saved. For as, a, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is to the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God removes our transgressions. That's how far God forgives us. Look at Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. He pours out his grace on us. His favor, his blessing, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. John MacArthur says this. I love this quote. There are no second-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. I just, um, this reminds me of John Barnes, the pastor that was at Sang Springs that went to Texas. Um, I went at his website, and this is just so John Barnes. Um, his title on the website, at least, was First Follower. <laughs> not pastor, not senior pastor. First Follower. Just to say, there is no second-class Christians. No deprived citizens of God's kingdom or children in his family. Every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. God knows how we were, how we are, and how we will live the rest of our lives. He sees everything about us in stark, naked reality. Yet he says... I am satisfied with you because I am satisfied with my son to whom you belong. When I look at you, I see him and I am well pleased. Therefore, the Redeemer is Christ. The redeemed is us Christians. The price of redemption is is Christ's blood, the death of Jesus, and the result of redemption is forgiveness and freedom from slavery. Amazing. The Bible never uses the word free will, but Christians are free. We are free. John eight thirty six says this, So the Son sets you free, and you will be free indeed. Galatians 5, 1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would we go back to slavery? 
I'm just reminded of the Israelites in the wilderness saying, it was better in Egypt in harsh slavery. It, It makes no sense. If you're pursuing sin as a Christian, that makes no sense. First Peter 2, 16. Live as people who are free. Don't go back to slavery. The slavery of sin. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But living as servants of God. You know what's interesting about that verse? That word servants there. It's the word doulos in Greek. Doulos in Greek means slaves. God bought us, therefore he owns us. We are his. Look at Romans 6.22, it says this. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And that's a good deal right there. (laughs) We are set free from sin and now we're owned by God. But here, it's a good thing, right? His yoke is easy. His burdens are light. Matthew eleven thirty. It's not the heavy burdens of Egypt. It's not the heavy burdens of sin. It's not heavy burdens of the law. His yoke is easy and his burdens are light. And he treats you, even though you're his slave, he treats you as sons and daughters and adopts you into his family. I want to end with this. Turn with me. To Galatians 5.13. I want you to see this one. Galatians 5.13. Verse 13. This is Craig's favorite verse. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom. And we were set free. Jesus redeemed us. He paid the ransom. We are free. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh. In other words, don't use your freedom to go back into slavery and sin. But through love, serve one another. Use your freedom to serve one another. Guess what that word serve is from? It's a verbal form of doulos. Slave. It can mean serve. It's a good translation to say serve. But this is what one, one commentary on the etymology of that word says. All the words related to doulos, this just is one of them. All the words related to the doulos family describes the status of a slave. Or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. In other words, we should serve one another. When you see one another, that's talking about the body, Christians. We should serve one another sacrificially and in all humility. Out of love. I just want you to see how God has commanded us to use our freedom. To love one another to sacrificially serve one another within the church, to serve the body. 
right? Which brings me right back where we started, Ephesians, the depth of God's grace, right? He's redeemed us from slavery by his blood. It is deep. The depth of God's grace lived out in love. Serve one another. I just want to end with this. Thank you. All of you servants here at Country Oaks, I just this, this, as I went through the studying this week, I just started thinking of all the different people that serve to make just Sunday happen. So many people. Thank you. There's so many of you. I don't even want to start naming names because I'll leave people out and I'll feel horrible. I do want to especially thank the children's ministry and the people that are serving within there. They're all in there right now, so they're not even hearing me. They hear me second service. Juana, thank you. Right? It's such a blessing. I mean, I'm just blown away at the people that are teaching my kids right now. Like, I walk in there, I'm like the, the theological depth of some of the people that are, are teaching four-year-olds right now. I'm like, that, that just, thank you. I want to challenge our body. Where can you serve? If you call this your, your home, if you call this your body, and if this is not your body, find one. Where can you serve within that body? Worship, grow, and serve. That's the three things we say. We come together Sunday morning and worship together. We grow together by getting in smaller groups and, and getting involved in each other's life and praying for each other, keeping each other accountable. And I hear the growth groups, are they're doing that. The third part is serving each other sacrificially serving, loving each other. And I would encourage you to, to think of children's ministry. We do need more helpers. We've got a, young, a lot of young families in the last few months coming to our church. We want to bless them. We get to share the gospel with children that don't know Christ. It's amazing. You know, I just, I know it's time to go, but I've said this time and time again, but it blows me away. I was at a conference where there was like a thousand pastors in a room. It was like a room like this just packed with pastors. And a guy from the conference was talking about children's ministry and how important it is. And he said this, how many of you were saved after the age of 13? And maybe 5% rose their hand. So all right, put your hand down. How many of you were saved before the age of 13? Everyone rose their hand. Man, that's so important. Sharing the gospel with our youth. Parents, it's primarily on your shoulders to do that. But what a blessing it is to help and be a part of children's ministry. We have sign-ups here if you, if you would like to sign up. And even the, the nursery and two- and three-year-olds, that's a thankless job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I have a two- or three-year-old and a, a child that's in nursery. Thank you. I'm just going to read Galatians 5.13 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, to be selfish. Be selfless, but through love, serve one another. Let's be a selfless church that serves each other. I love that verse. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, 
We are in awe of you for your grace that has been poured out on us, Lord. Each week as we, we go to another verse in this passage, Lord, it's just grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. We are just overwhelmed with the blessings that you are pouring out on us, Lord. And I pray in that, that being overwhelmed, Lord, that we overflow with love and service and sacrificially giving of ourselves to others. We belong to you, Lord as sons and daughters, and you have called us to serve each other, to love each other sacrificially. An amazing calling, God. Help us to look at that as a privilege, Lord, a joy. Help us to be challenged to figure out, where can I serve this body, Lord? I just pray that visitors come, Lord, and go, what is up with this church? (laughs) They love each other so much. I don't get it. Let that be a testimony to to your grace, Lord. I pray for that in your son's name. Amen.